Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources, and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the journalist and author, Sean Meads-Williams. We spoke to Sean about starting out in journalism, the origin of freelance writing jobs, her successful newsletter, and about her new book, The Pajama Myth. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Sean, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's excellent to have you on the show. Could we start about talking about the origin story for uh, your newsletter, Freelance Writing Jobs, how it came to be and how it evolved into the, the juggernaut that it is today? Yeah, of course we can. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I actually had the idea for Freelance Writing Jobs. It was early 2018. Um, I had had the worst six months of my freelance career. I've been freelance for about 15 years. Um, It was bad enough in 2017 that I had to postpone the second year of my literature MA. I couldn't afford the fees. And it was, it just felt like a constant struggle. I hadn't been working hand to mouth for a long time. And I, I was really incredibly worried about what that meant for the future of being a freelance writer and as things tend to happen in the world of freelance when you stop worrying and kind of just relax a little bit and stop being so stressed out work picks up again work always picks up again Um, I think most people have found that even in a pandemic work does always pick up Um, and when it did I suddenly had all of these job leads and over I'd become a pro at searching every single jobs board and I knew where all the work was coming from and I didn't need it anymore. So I created a newsletter and I I knew it was terrible timing for me personally because I was supposed to be writing a dissertation about Jean Rees. And instead I, I had a couple of hours to kill one evening and I thought I'd see how long it would take to pull together and three days later the first issue went live. How did you advertise it? Was it on Twitter and how many people signed up originally? It was everything I've done has always been on Twitter Um, so yeah it was um, Twitter and then I think the um, 400 people signed up to the first one so yeah it's it was 
it's got something in it that people really really respond to and I think there's always been a need for it um like I think since then it's, it's calmed down a little bit now but since it launched four years ago about 250 people have subscribed each week it's kept on going up um so it's it's helpful it's simple it fulfills a need um it's quite funny sometimes um so it's yeah it's it's never been anything more than a helpful resource um and I think that's part of the reason people like it could you tell us a bit about the mechanics of putting it together how you go about uh finding the vacancies and and what determines which ones you put in because I understand it it's not everything it's not like a complete sweep of what's available it is not everything um not all job adverts are created equally um and not all job roles either so I tend to I have um, several different RSS feeds. I'm one of the few people I know who still uses an RSS reader. Um, I tend to use Feedly to pull in a lot of information from sites like Indeed and stuff like that. Um, so I can get very specific search terms and it's manual work. Um, there is no other way to search LinkedIn except searching LinkedIn um, because you're, you're looking for very specific things. And it's not just a case of just, if it was just a general jobs email, I think it would be quite easy to pull together, but because you're looking for freelance or short-term work or temporary work, or even part-time, it's, it's a very different kettle of fish and you can't do that all with an RSS feed. Um, I tend to check the careers page of every single website I visit. I do it without even thinking about it, um, which means that if there's if I'm booking um, tickets to see an exhibition, um, I will always check like the photographer's gallery always looks for freelance writers. And usually I double check every time I book in book in to see a show or something like that. Um, Editors get in touch with me which is always really great actually, because I think now the newsletters become such a trusted resource that it's very much become a two-way sort of experience in that sense. Um, But I still don't put in everything that comes to me directly. Um, I do what I can to push rates up. Um, If rates aren't high enough, they don't go in the newsletter. I have a benchmark and I try, I really don't go under it. Um, Even if I know the editors who are emailing me, um, there are some circumstances when I really want rates to be disclosed. Um, And I really, the whole point is that it puts freelancers first. And that means that sometimes editorial positions just aren't aren't shared because I don't think I think there's a finite amount of space I tend to share about 20 to 30 jobs each week and it will always be to the benefit of the freelancer and sometimes that means some jobs don't go in. You alluded to this earlier but what's the reach of the newsletter both in terms of how many people it's going to but also geographically and how is that broken down by age, gender, everything else the newsletter reaches all over the world um which is a surprise to me because it has a very specific uk focus um that's not necessarily because i don't think freelancers should be pitching all over the world they absolutely should but i can't easily kind of police if you like jobs that are listed in austin texas or kind of south america i don't know enough about that and i really want to use kind of my expertise as a writer to make sure the jobs that i'm featuring are the best quality 
um, and I hope that it's still helpful for writers all over the world but it's very specifically UK and that also gives me chance to be a little less London centric about it I always make sure there are jobs in Scotland I always make sure there are more jobs outside of the UK than there are outside of London than there are in the city um, the gender split is slightly higher women um, but I think we're talking 60 40 percent um, so it's not a huge difference um, as for subscribers it's it's a really difficult number for me to kind of talk about openly um, not because I don't want to I'm delighted with my subscriber figure it's about 28,000 um, but what I am aware of is when people hear that especially new freelancers they're terrified of it because you kind of think that that means there are 28,000 people applying for one job and it's just not the case people pick and choose there are some editors on the list who just want to see who else is commissioning and what's going on um, some people are reading and they're just passers by some people sign up for the gifts and the book recommendations um, and I assure you I don't think anyone has ever had 28,000 applications for one job um, so it's yeah it's important to me that it's still accessible for new writers. Is it a commercial venture for you? Do you make money off it? I mean, presumably with an audience of that scale, you could sell ads or that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I do. I, there are space for ads at the top of the newsletter. Um, and I also have the occasional affiliate link, um, which usually means if I'm writing about a job at Net-A-Porter, there's a link to a skirt or a dress I like. Um, and I also have um, an option for priority membership as well, which is something that's been relatively new during the pandemic the newsletter just became an absolute lifeline for subscribers while it used to be this lovely thing I did each week the pandemic really changed that my my audience doubled um and how I approached the email really had to change because with the doubling of my audience my MailChimp fees also increased enormously and that meant that towards the end of last year I was losing money by sending it takes about a day and a half for me to put together and it's just a huge amount of time to take out of your freelance working week without making some sort of money um, so the only way I could do it I've always wanted to keep the newsletter free um, it's it's a resource that helps freelancers make money it's not something I want I don't want to profit from freelancers I want to profit from the companies who are hiring um, or companies that want to reach that audience um, but I do have an option for priority membership which means that people can get the newsletter 24 hours earlier so it goes out on a Thursday to regular members it goes out on a Wednesday to um, to priority members I think it, it works really well um, you get the same email there's no kind of added value or anything like that it's it's exactly the same it's just if you're really looking for work it's a really nice option in the time that you've been running it, how do you feel that the newsletter landscape has evolved and, and people's attitudes towards receiving regular newsletters? Oh, I am so pleased about just how many more newsletters there are. I love them. It's absolutely one of my favourite formats. I'm delighted to see how much they've grown, how much nicer they look than they did four years ago. But I think as well, people were really sceptical of this thing that landed in their inbox every week. Um, and now that's not the case anymore. We're much more trusting about email as a format, which is lovely. And I think it, one thing it means is perhaps people are 
the busier their inboxes get, the less kind of, I, th I think value is the wrong word, but we're certainly jostling for more competition and more space as newsletter creators. But I think that just, that happens in every industry. Um, it happened It happened with blogging. It happens with kind of indie magazines. I think I, I am so happy to fill my inbox with brilliant newsletters that I love um so yeah never sad about that and you've you've written that you're heartened by examples of, of people who've got work off the newsletter and where it's led to various opportunities could you give us some examples yeah um oh, I, I love it I love those emails more than anything just people saying it's like this this newsletter has actually changed my life um I estimated uh recently that the newsletter probably helps freelancers gain about a million pounds a year in commissions um, and that sounds enormous that sounds absolutely huge but I think I've had tens of thousands of pounds in commissions through calls for pictures in the newsletter um, people have had book deals several book deals people have met their agents through the newsletter and then there's regular and copywriting work on top so it's it's really huge um, and and it is life-changing and it it's like I say, it stopped being this lovely, helpful resource. And it really is a lifeline for freelancers in the UK. That's a eye-popping figure. Congratulations. <laughs> Could we fold back now to the sort of beginnings of your own career? When did you decide you wanted to pursue writing? I did an English literature degree um, and there was a creative writing element to that. Um, and I had no idea what to do with it. Um, I didn't even know what to do with it when I finished university um, and I applied for a job at a magazine selling advertising sales or selling advertising space. Um, yeah, I was in media sales for a well-known insurance magazine and I was surprisingly good at it, possibly because telesales is something I did throughout college, throughout uni. Um, I'm very happy talking on the phone to people but it was not one I, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I'm very sorry to insurance times. I still don't know the difference between a broker and an underwriter. I've got no idea. And I was on that magazine for over a year. I, I needed something else creative to do. And a friend of mine told me that a website called Londonist was looking for writers. And I emailed them and I started writing. It really was that simple. Um, and then I moved jobs. Um, I went to work for uh, British Airways magazine, um, and which was a little bit more glamorous, but not much. Um, and they, I got told in the interview that I absolutely could not see it as a backdoor into journalism. It was not going to lead to a writing job. And they made me promise not to take the job if I was going to pursue writing full time. And up until then, it hadn't even occurred to me that I could. So I put it to the back of my mind, carried on writing for Londonist, and then someone offered some London, an old editor at Londonist offered a bunch of the writers some part-time, some freelance work. So that my first freelance job is one that I can't talk about because I signed an NDA 15 years ago. I'm very sorry, um, but it's a project that didn't get off the ground. Um, but I did get paid for it. And it turns out it's a lot of fun. Um, and then there was another job not soon afterwards that needed me to quit my job. And I was 24 and didn't think twice. Just, I think at, when you're 24 and someone offers you a job that sounds amazing, you just, you just take it, don't you? Um, 
it lasted about three months. I was inexperienced and in absolutely just no position to run any sort of website. Um, I should not have been an editor of any site at 24 without any any experience. Um, but I learned a lot. So um, then I I was scrappy. I pestered every single person I knew for freelance contacts for editor details and I pitched I don't know how I cobbled together my first pitch because I've never written it before um and I got a commission a week later and I think I was writing about burlesque because it was the early 2000s and that's what you did in the early 2000s you wrote a lot about burlesque how did you then kind of over the the months and the years that follow go go kind of feel your way forward as a freelancer learning about pitches dealing with rejection that that kind of thing how did that journey work for you I I think I learned by getting it wrong um which sounds sounds really disheartening but I think when you throw yourself into the deep end you're just trying stuff to see what what fits and what sticks and finding out what works for you and I think to be honest that's one of the reasons that um the pajama mess which is the book that came out um a couple of days ago it's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book because I know how hard it is for freelance writers if they don't have that steer to get it right because there is no hard and fast rule for how to send an article pitch no one no one tells you that because it's different for every single editor and I I messed it up a lot I did um and I think once once I'd found editors and writers that I worked well with I I kept pitching them. I absolutely kept kept working for those those publications, and I think that helped a lot. Um, I think nowadays we'd call it building relationships. I think at the time I was too scared to pitch anybody else um, because I, I really didn't know what I was doing because I was twenty five and and just kind of feeling my way and finding my way. But there wasn't the resources that there are now. Um, so when I launched that first pretty awful website, um, back in, I want to say 2007 or thereabouts, um, we didn't have a Twitter account when we launched. I don't think I was even on Twitter. Um, so that's, and I don't want to sound like a grandma and be, that's how far back we're going, but there wasn't this place where you could just network with a bunch of writers unless you had a staff job, unless you were in that sphere. You didn't really know how to meet any other writers. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, very different time. You mentioned some of the things that worked for you and some of the things that didn't. Can you give any kind of specifics about what you learned in that in that period? I think now I would be less scared to follow up with editors um that that it really scared me I've I found it really hard if an editor rejected a pitch um and I really wish I hadn't I wish I'd been braver um I wish I'd really tried to hone those relationships um and and jump on opportunities instead of being nervous about what someone I've never met might think um so yeah I would I would start there um I talk a lot in the book about my mental health when I was um when I was starting out and I don't think I had a brilliant amount of self-esteem 
when I was 25, 26. Um, I did an excellent job of hiding it, um, but I was I was struggling in a lot of very different ways. And being freelance was great because it did mean that actually I didn't have the pressure of a nine to, nine to five job, um, which I think I would have found incredibly difficult. But it also meant that I became quite insular and I know that I missed out on a lot of opportunities because I wasn't necessarily taking care of myself. Um, there's a certain amount of kind of care that's taken for you from um, when you're in an office. Um, you have to eat lunch at a certain time. You start work at a certain time. You finish work at a certain time. And when you go freelance, you don't have that you can do what you like and actually when you're when you're 25 26 and you realize that you can go to an event and get free drinks all night and then start work at midday the next day and no one cares that's fun for a while but after a while it's it's something that it's actually quite damaging um so given the chance I would I would have taken care of myself a little bit more I think and what was the split both at that time and and towards the present between editorial and commercial work in the stuff you were doing? Um, I think I've always been fairly open about how much commercial work I do. It's a lot um, because it pays brilliantly and I write about the same topics I do anyway. Um, so I've because I've always written about kind of lifestyle, food, travel, that's, that's a segue into commercial work that I've always been happy with. Um, my first job at the Times was um, as wedding editor, which sounds like such a glamorous job. I think I've still got the lanyard they gave me because I was so proud of it. Um, but it was it was commercial copy. Um, the site section was sponsored by uh, by Virgin, I think. Um, but I didn't care because I was writing for for the Times and I was having an excellent time doing it. And I think. I mean, I can't, I couldn't tell you the split, but even now, one of my favorite freelance clients is, um, is a commercial magazine, but I'm looking at this, the, the content that they share and it's the line between commercial and editorial blurs very much in lifestyle. And it's, it's one that I think has changed in many ways for the better, because I think it means commercial content has got a lot more interesting. Um, and it's not just some, I don't think we can just, you can just whack advertorial on something and people are buying it anymore. You really have to try and write interesting commercial content that people are willing to spend time with. Um, and I'm very pleased to see that people are investing in that and investing in quality writing in that sense as well. Something that we always ask about on the show is money. And luckily your book talks about money quite a lot, um, which we Simon in particular I'm sure loves to see would you say that the commercial stuff is an essential part of your kind of portfolio and would you you know would you feel comfortable losing it and doing just kind of journalism or do you think actually it's quite a crucial part of your income and the way that you deal with your finances I think because I have so many uh, different projects that I work on the commercial side of what I do really helps pay for that um I didn't work for the first two months of this year because I was busy promoting a book. I was busy. I was busy trying to write a novel um, and enter the first three chapters of that into a competition. The thing that helped me be able to do that was the commercial work. And I don't think you can do that 
if you're writing for an excellent magazine that pays 150 pounds a pop you don't have the time and if I'm being paid a pound a word to write a commercial piece that just makes sense to me um and I think a lot of journalists feel the same way um there are some that don't there is there are absolutely writers who make a brilliant living just writing features I say just I don't mean just I mean solely writing features and editorial and I think they're incredibly talented um it's I like the balance that I have I like the the extra time that it affords me um and and I really like my client work as well um last year I spent a really long time working on a lot of uh interesting case studies for spirits brands um I've spent a good four months writing about scotch um and whiskey and that was really fun uh last week I was um interviewing a goat cheese maker in the UK um so these are all things that I would do as as a writer anyway so I think I think writers really need to be more honest or freelance writers need to be more honest about how much commercial work they do um we've got into this idea that it's it's this taboo thing to do and I don't think paying your rent with editorial is taboo and I think people should just get paid and be happy and proud of the work they're doing and if you're not proud of the work you're doing for commercial clients I would question why do it um and I share it as much as I do any other so and do you do it under your name yeah I do yeah right. yeah absolutely I, I don't there are some places that don't put your name on commercial work there are a lot of places that do that and it always makes me a bit sad because it's been written by someone and then the brand will come along and just go, no, we want it as an all encompassing brand name, which is a little bit odd. Um, but yeah, where possible, I, I put my name on it. I'm more than happy to. Um, you've talked in your book and elsewhere about, you know, making those first steps as a freelancer and making some kind of financial misjudgments. Would you be happy to kind of elucidate those to, to, to listeners? Yes, I can. Um, I don't think I've actually talked about it properly this year. So this this will be fun. Um, I, I talk in the book about the time HMRC told me I may have to declare bankruptcy. Um, and if we're talking about the biggest mistake I made when I was a young freelancer, that was it. Um, not taking my finances seriously and thinking that HMRC would have been incredibly impressed with my candor as I called them up and I was just like hello I'd like to be on a payment plan please and they were just like no um and I was like well what what do I do if I can't pay this bill and they were just like you will have to declare bankruptcy and even now saying that out loud makes my blood run cold it's chilling to me and I had no idea and I don't think I had realized for years after that just how much stress that put me under um the knock-on effect of that chain of events which I am happy to talk about was it impacted my life for several years afterwards um I was put on a payment plan and my payment plan was hundreds of pounds a month um which I could pay but the problem with that is that I could then not save for my next year's tax bill um I could not save for my payment on account I couldn't save for anything outside of paying my rent um which was a blessing because it was actually very cheap um and that's probably the only thing that kept me in London um I 
I absolutely spiraled. Um, I got into debt incredibly quickly. Um, I think I I started having panic attacks. Um, I was diagnosed with a panic disorder before I was diagnosed with depression. Both of those led to agoraphobia. I was waking up bolt upright at four in the morning. It was an incredibly difficult time. I drank through most of it. Um, I wrote a book I don't remember. Um, I, I just, I have no memory of one year. And I don't talk about that much in the book. I think I mentioned that in passing, but I wrote a chapter of a guidebook for Frommers London. Um, and I have no recollection of that project at all. Um, and it came to a head when I realized that I, I was gonna make myself incredibly unwell. And I went to the bank and I asked for help and they said, no. Um, and they said no, because I had been trying to fix everything. I had, I'd borrowed too much in too short a time. Um, and I think without realizing it, this is one of the reasons that poss quite possibly led to me very much wanting to help freelancers and very much wanting to write a book because I don't by in any way think that I am a stupid person. I made a series of very, very small ill-judged decisions and it's so easy to do because there is this huge jump when you go freelance between when you start and when you actually have to pay your tax bill when you throw in unpaid invoices and chasing clients and the wonderful joy that is payment on account um, you it's so easy to tumble out of having enough money in your savings account and especially if you have moved from a staff job where you're very very used to regular money it's really easy for three four five small things to become a very very big problem um, and it took me years to recover and I think it took me years to recover financially and mentally um, the damage that I did to my mental health was ongoing um, and it's yeah, it's very, it's very strange to think about that time. I think it's really um, impressive that you've you've spoken so candidly about that. And I think it's something our listeners will draw a lot of value from. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the journalist and author Sean Meads Williams. It's time for the next instalment of our segment. As you know, in this segment, we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. They answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Because their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, we're hoping that they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the editor of The Athletic, Alex K. Jelski, on a time in his career he failed. When in my career have I failed and what did I learn from it? Wow, that is going to be a long list. Um, what springs to mind is when I was at the male sports desk, when I was really, really near the beginning of my career, I was put in charge of this cricket scoreboard and I completely screwed it up. And my boss called me and I was like, how the hell am I going to get out of this? And I over-apologized. I apologized so much as if like I'd probably caused some harm to his family. And I think he was completely taken aback and didn't know what to say. Um, 
And so I learned that when you mess up, own it, because then people can't be as angry with you. That was Alex K. Jelski. And if you found what Alex had to say interesting, you can listen to our full episode with him via our website now. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Sean Meads-Williams. I think for, for, for myself on with tax, and I, 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 the most useful advice I was ever given, which I still do today, was that, you know, 20% of everything you earn as soon as you get it goes into a different bank account like it's not yours it's not it's not your money um i mean what what do you think the the way to to sort of future proof yourself against as you say this lag between when you earn what do you think is best practice for for a freelancer in that situation i think that is best practice i really do um and i think it's also one of the hardest um it's i mentioned it in my book i think i even suggest saving 30 percent because you will get stung by payment on account and you will also get stung by national insurance and if you have a student loan that comes out as well um it it feels like a lot but you're absolutely right it's not your money it's just it I think one of the problems is that it's very easy to dip into that account and it's very easy to dip into that account because you think that that repeat client is going to come back and then they don't or then something happens or then like I had to yesterday you unexpectedly have to take your cat to the vet you lose money on a holiday there's there's drama that you just don't foresee coming which happens because it's life um and before you know it you're 400 pounds down for the month and that's not a lot but it is a lot a month before christmas and then you don't get paid by a large by a large client because obviously no one thinks to pay their freelancers before christmas so then you have to wait till the next payment run and suddenly you're 2000 pounds down and it's it's so easy to dip into that savings account it is so easy um I think now HMRC make it a lot easier to pay by direct debit. And while I'm all for having savings, actually making interest in my own account, I think they need to be clearer about the benefits of paying by a direct debit. If you're not in arrears with HMRC, you can just send them money each month. Um, If you haven't sent them enough by the end of your, by the time your tax bill is due, they'll just ask for the remainder. If you sent too much, they'll send it back. Um, I think that's a really good option if you are terrible at, I don't want to say terrible at spending or terrible with money because I think it's so negative and what money, managing money isn't easy. Managing money for freelancers isn't easy. There is so many struggles and challenges that come with it. Um, And these days I have, I have about four different savings accounts. Um, I really do put my money in several different pockets. Um, I rely heavily on Plum, um, which is a savings app that just takes out a little bit of money each week that I don't even notice. Um, My bank is set up with Save the Change. So every time I spend like £3.98 or something, that little extra 2p goes into my savings account. It sounds like nothing, but I think that together that probably makes saves me thousands of pounds each year without me thinking um and i've set up the smallest standing order i possibly could each week and again it's just money that i don't notice um and for me as a freelancer i think that's the 
that's the way that works for me. Um, but I also know freelancers who have one regular client and that's what pays their tax. I think I know a freelancer who basically decides that any money they earn in one month of the year is just their tax money. That's it. Um, a lot of freelancers take advantage of um, people being on holiday in August and picking up shifts at newspapers and they just decide that August is their tax month and the, the work they do, the extra work they pick up usually covers the bill. So I think it's deciding what is right and what works for you and your spending habits and just realizing that it's a very movable feast. And I think I now know that being forewarned is forearmed and I can't ever leave my tax return until the last minute. I, I need to know what I'm saving for um, and I need to be on top of my money. I need to know how much I'm invoicing. But also one of the best things I did was make sure I had an idea of when that money was coming in. Um, there is nothing worse than taking on a bunch of work in, say, the last three days of a month, thinking, writing on a spreadsheet that you're going to get paid the next month when you won't, because it's the end of the month. You're not you're not going to invoice in, in for work at the end of June until July. You won't get paid that until August at the very earliest. If you've got a shonky client that always pays late or thinks that 90 days payment terms are acceptable it's September October before you're seeing that money and I think we need to I needed to take responsibility for that and it was it was the best thing I did for my mental health just to just to be honest and face it head on and approach it like my freelancing as a business and it worked it helped in terms of working that out obviously with clients that you've worked with before you have a sense of how you know efficient they are and how quick they are to pay you when you're working with new clients do you just assume that they'll be slow and then you have a pleasant surprise if it lands in your account sooner it's so hard to say at the moment I'm working with a client that pays 30 days net which is incredibly strange um, but I'm also working with another client that pays within half an hour um, I, I really think it changes from client to client and it's, there is no one size fits all, but it absolutely dictates which clients I work with now. Um, because it's it, as depressing as it is, it is usually the larger companies that are terrible at paying. Um, and that hasn't changed for 15 years. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious. It sounds so negative because I just, there is so much I love about freelancing. Um, I don't think I would have written a book about freelancing if I didn't love it. Um, but it is the reality that getting paid is one of the hardest parts of it. And I think every freelance career is different. Um, there's, there's never been a one size fits all approach. Um, and that really means that some freelancers may not experience a bad client for the first six months of they're freelancing and some people might have an awful experience with the very first time I think what is a big surprise for a lot of staff writers is when they go freelance and they still experience people not paying them and it's the companies that they've been working for and taking a salary from and then they're on the other side of it and they can speak to Kate or Dave in accounts 
but they're still waiting for their money in the same way all freelancers are. So it's really frustrating. Sean, a question I, I wanted to ask, which is less in a sense about your work, but about more the kind of advice for freelancers space is that I think, which I think is a commendable um, activity and, and, and really important. But one thing that I sometimes think is there's a lot of focus on the kind of micro aspects. So in terms of how to pay one's taxes, as you've alluded to, in terms of pitching, stuff like that, but less of a, a kind of discussion of some of the bigger questions. And I know you have a section in the book, which is a kind of like, what's it for? purpose you know where is this going but i think you know in a sense i think this is in some ways an extension of the the commercial versus editorial question that we had before in that given that commercial work as you said is is much better paid it's more abundant and things like that it can be particularly in those you know when you're kind of scrabbling and making your way that that can draw people in but i think that there is an opportunity cost in that and that can draw people away potentially from some of the stuff that they've wanted to be a freelancer for or, or to achieve. And I think for, for me, and speaking only personally, the thing that I find that the kind of fundamental trade that that makes the insecurity or things like that worth it, um, or I think perhaps a, just a, my kind of broad complex feelings about institutions are part of it, but it but is the opportunity to pursue your creative aspirations or your you know your dreams to use a big word so for me it would be wanting to write big magazine pieces or writing books and and stuff like that and i i sometimes feel that those those larger questions can get a bit lost and that particularly you know it's it's great if 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 you know if someone's able to support themselves in, in any capacity really but that because there's more commercial work and, and stuff like that available that, that that can almost suck away the the time and the opportunity that you could be applying to do other stuff. I mean, what what it, it's a it's a whole it's a whole area I'm I'm aware. But what are your thoughts on on that piece? I think one of the things that that you mentioned that I talk about in the book is defining your own success, and I think that plays a big part of it. Um, and I don't think I necessarily realised when I started out what that meant to me. I don't. I think I'm still trying to define what success as a writer means to me. And I used to have this big list of dream cover stories and bylines that I really, really wanted to shoot for. And I really had to ask myself what it was I wanted. And I remember someone saying to me, to what end? And I try really hard to remember that. So I say, what is it that I'm actually searching for? Is it the recognition from being in a publication? Is it being able to tick something off a list? Or is there something very different driving me? And I think as a freelancer, what I look for is often financial security, is often feeling really, really creatively inspired. Um, It's... It's also something that's a little bit more minute than that as well. I really want to feel great about my job every day. And that is incredibly hard to pin down. But sometimes that means, as I did this morning, going for breakfast with an editor and having a really lovely time and meeting her child for the first time because she had her baby at the start of the pandemic. Um, And he's two now, so she just appeared with an actual person. Um, And just the freedom that freelancing gives you is something that is such a great thing. Um, Freelancing at the moment now means that I can write novels instead. Um, So I guess what I'm saying is it is different for every, every single freelancer. And we have this dream ideal of what a freelancer life is supposed to look like. 
And I'm going to be honest, I think that is especially so for women. We are supposed to be girl bossing everything and it's exhausting and it's always in pink on Instagram. Um, it's, it is incredibly hard to kind of figure out what it is that you want. Um, and I think it changes throughout our careers as well. I've moved away from magazine journalism ideals because I've always been a digital writer and yet there's still this pang when I think I I wish I was writing more for magazines and actually I still love the immediacy of digital Um, and figuring that out for yourself doesn't happen overnight Um, and I think now I just ask myself how I want my freelance career to feel and I think um, it's it's a little bit more relaxed than it ever has been um and because I used to be an absolute undoubted workaholic this is a very very new change of pace um it's very weird to say I'm no longer a workaholic when I've just published a book um because I don't think those two things necessarily go hand in hand um but I'm I'm just conscious of everything around working for myself that makes it such a joy um and whether that means I'm writing commercial work or creative copy or editorial I don't think the question is kind of what am I giving up it's for me it's what am I gaining um and that changes every month um sometimes I I want to do a really really interesting editorial piece and I will make space for it sometimes I really want to go on holiday and I will make space to pay for that um and what I love about freelancing is that you're you get to choose you get to make those decisions for yourself could we talk now about the freelance writing awards as well as the freelance writing jobs fund how did those two ventures come about we can yeah um so the freelance writing fund came from just wanting to do something for other freelancers in the pandemic um for for anyone listening who isn't aware of what it is um i i set up a fund and i'm using fund in inverted commas there because that's what it's called but it's not a not-for-profit um i just decided in the first few months of the pandemic to give um some of my profits I think I gave 50% of one month's profits from the newsletter to other writers um, and mentoring other people chipped in Um, there was someone who donated um, a significant amount of money so we were able to do mentoring for I think about 12 12 writers um, with a small amount of cash as well and I did it last year as well I'd really like to do it this year Um, but one of the difficulties with that is that because the pajama myth was crowdfunded through Unbound I'm already doing a significant amount of mentoring because that was part of the pledges through Unbound so people said say actually I want the book but I want the book with a pitching session with Sean um, or I want a one-to-one or very exciting that I get to go book shopping with some people and chat about freelancing as we walk around Waterstones um, so they, it's timing that I think is the issue this year so I think it'll run a little bit later this year if it does um, but it's something that I very much want to continue um, just because I, I, really, I really believe that once you have a large community, you can do good with it. Um, and that is what I want to do. Um, I'm very lucky to be in a 
I just I really really love the trust that freelancers give me um, and I really want to do something with that I think a lot of responsibility comes with having an audience that is tens of thousands strong and I can do good um, and I think the freelance writing awards was largely for similar reasons um, or more cynical reasons as well but we can talk about that too um, I I really wanted to do something to help freelancers feel less rubbish after probably one of the worst years of their career. And I spent a lot of time last year applying for awards and it's expensive. It's really, really expensive. It's really expensive as a freelancer. So if you want to apply for a PPA award um, and you're a staff writer, you're ed- your editor or somewhere in your media institution will cover that fee for you and when you're freelance they won't and there are several reasons largely because you also probably also write for their competitors Um, you will take the trophy home with you and they won't get to display it in their boardroom Um, and it's not it doesn't make financial sense for them to do that Um, which means that I think I think the PPA awards are 380 pounds. There is no concession for freelancers for that one. And then you have to pay to go to the party, which is about the same amount of money. And I've eaten those dinners. They're fine, but it's, that's not what you're paying for. So it's very much pay to play and it's rubbish for freelancers to be shut out. And so many media companies talked last year about how valuable freelancers had been while they cut budgets for freelancers, while they insisted freelancers worked for less money and they still don't get invited to the parties. Um, so rather than waiting for someone to invite us to the party, a fellow freelancer, Anna Cadreirado and I launched our own awards. Could you tell us a bit about, about those awards, about how you, you devised them and, and what the reaction was like? It was a brilliant reaction, actually. Um, And it's also one of the most exhausting things we've ever done. Both of us, we took a month off afterwards. Um, You can't run an awards with two people. Um, You need need a team. And um, we we learn a lot about doing that. Um, But we also love working together. We've run events together before. Um, We've both got books out on the same topic. Um, So that was a joy. Very unusually for any sort of awards we paid our judges Um, we didn't pay them a lot but it was really important to us that if we were going to ask editors and freelancers to be part of something that celebrated freelancers they needed to be paid Um, the awards were free which was the biggest issue I think for us kind of financially like Anna and I didn't make money Um, we had sponsors but that went to paying the awards it went to the prize money and at one point I was wrangling 107 spreadsheets it was a big day I was dreaming in excel um so but it was a really really lovely thing um everyone really understood what we were trying to do and the community that we were trying to create and some of the mentoring that we set up is still going on almost a year later. Um, we just asked um, some editors to have chats with some of the people who'd been shortlisted for the new freelancer award and and they're still doing that mentoring. It really meant a lot to people. Um, and, and I know that it's helped some people actually get their dream jobs. Um, so being highly commended for a freelance award was really instrumental in someone, someone getting their new job, which is, it's fantastic. And 
I think that's one of the things that we know is really vital for freelancers, especially new freelancers, especially freelancers who don't live in London. Those connections are really, really important. So, so when people are shut out, when people don't get invited to the parties, that has an impact on people. And the majority of our long list and our short list were based outside of London. So it really, it, it stopped just being this London centric media fest. It was, it was about the wider community and I loved it. And I loved turning Anna's living room into a makeshift studio for a live event that everyone said we must have been practicing for hours. Um, we weren't, I was late and we were eating chips about five minutes before we went live. So <laughs> because we were hungry, it was six o'clock. Um, so, but we had a great time and yeah, I, I really loved it and I was really proud of it. We're coming towards the end of the time. So a kind of question for me and I don't mean this to sound glib so you can interpret it either as literally or kind of metaphorically as you like you mentioned obviously in the title of your book is the pajama myth what do you find the pros and cons of working in your pajamas are I really think pajamas if you're going to work in them have to be clean on just staying in what you wore the night before and not showering it's it's horrible. I don't think anyone does their best work like that. It doesn't stop me from doing it, uh, probably two days a week. Um, but I think just one of the best things about being freelance is being comfortable where we work and and in how we work. And again, I think that goes back to the whole idea of perhaps the opportunity to work in your pajamas isn't necessarily a definition of success. But the opportunity to have that freedom and autonomy in our own lives certainly is and just to trust ourselves to do the best work and sometimes that means I'm curled up on the sofa writing in a notebook with the cat um, sometimes that means I'm working at four in the morning and I probably shouldn't be I probably should have gone to bed um, it's it's just comfort makes us all work better and I don't think that comfort always comes from an open plan office does it as a final final thing for me and kind of extending from from Rachel's question what do you think about the routine and the and the pros and cons of routine as as a freelancer I now that I've got a really set space in my week newsletter has to go out on a Wednesday afternoon I really like having this little set time that it's a deadline that I have to meet. Um, so my routine is set and structured by deadlines. And I think that's the case for most freelancers. So if you'd speak to anyone who doesn't freelance, they just assume that you're writing for 30, 40 clients each month. You're dashing here, there and everywhere. And that's true for a lot of writers. But often freelancers tend to have kind of like five or six solid clients that they regularly write for. Any others are just a bonus. Um, and we're constantly pitching work, but I do find that we're a lot less here, there and everywhere than people expect, especially at the moment. Um, my routine is generally now that I, I do everything I can to finish work by six um, until I realised how prescriptive that was getting. Um, now I've realised that actually I really like an exercise class that takes place at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday so I just interrupt my day and I head out into town and that suits me just fine I love running in the middle of the day um I stopped at four o'clock to play Mario Kart um I'm really I'm flexible in 
doing what needs to be done I guess um I I really love my job but I really love it when it fits around my life now that's a fitting note to end on thank you so much Sean for your time and all the very best for everything going forward thanks so much for having me That was the Always Take Notes interview with Sean Meads-Williams. Her book, The Pajama Myth, is published by Unbound. You can find her on Twitter at Shani Shani Shani, and you can sign up for her newsletter, Freelance Writing Jobs, at her website, which is shanmeadswilliams.com. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway with the interview with Sean? I thought that was probably one of the most honest conversations we've had about money on the show. Um, And I was struck reading her book uh, that it was a kind of how-to guide as how to start out as a freelance journalist, distilling these kind of missteps that she's made into a kind of useful guide for for someone starting out. And again, on the theme of money, the, the usefulness of having a source of income like copywriting or commercial work that can sustain your other projects. What did you think? Yeah, I was also struck by the, by the money stuff. I mean, obviously, it's a question that we always ask, but I thought she was laudably honest about her, her run-ins with the tax man and how she found, found her way through that. And I thought also when we, we asked about this kind of line between commercial editorial work and how she patrols that one, she was very thoughtful on that. Um, and the newsletter I, I highly recommend as well for anyone who, who doesn't get it so far. So a great um, addition to the Always Take Notes canon. Uh, Rachel, what have you been up to otherwise? Been juggling lots of stuff at the minute, actually, in a slightly exhausting way. Not, not least our own stellar lineup of guests, which we are organising at the minute. Um, some, some script reading, some writing, some reading, you know, the, the whole mix as usual. How about you? I was away last week in, in Paris, which was sort of, half holiday but um I had to work as well so it was actually it was good it was good but I I had a a magazine deadline um and uh yeah working working on these 1843 pieces really so so it's been busy but uh but good this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Aikum and me Rachel Lloyd our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.